Section 29 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 1. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. August 22nd. The aspect of this great Egyptian metropolis is not nearly so imposing as I had fancied it to be. Its situation is too flat, and from on board we can only discern scattered portions of its extended area. The gardens skirting the shore are luxuriant and lovely. At my debarkation, and on the road to the consulate, I met with several adventures, which I relate circumstantially, trifling as they may appear, in order to give a hint as to the best method of dealing with the people here. At the very commencement I became involved in a dispute with the captain of the vessel. I still had to pay him three dollars and a half, and gave him four dollars, in the consideration that he would return me my change. This, however, he refused to do, and persisted in keeping the half dollar. He said it should be divided as bakshish among the crew, but I am sure they would have seen nothing of it. Luckily, however, he was stupid enough not to put the money in his pocket, but kept it open in his palm. I quickly snatched a coin from him, and put it into my pocket, explaining to him at the same time that he should not have it back until he had given me my change, adding that I would give the men a gratuity myself. He shouted and stormed, and kept on asking me for the money. I took no heed of him, but continued quietly packing up my things. Seeing at length that nothing was to be done with me, he gave me back my half-dollar, whereupon we parted good friends. This affair concluded, I had to look about for a couple of asses, one for myself and another for my baggage. If I had stepped ashore, I should have been almost torn in pieces by contending donkey-drivers, each of whom would have lugged me in a different direction. I therefore remained quietly for a time in my cabin, until the drivers ceased to suspect that any one was there. In the meantime I had been looking upon the shore from the cabin window, and speculating upon which animal I should take. Then I quickly rushed out, and before the proprietors of the long-eared steeds were aware of my intention, I had seized one by the bridle and pointed to another. This concluded the matter at once, for the proprietors of the chosen animals defended me from the rest, and returned with me to the boat to carry my baggage. A fellow came up and arranged my little trunk on the back of the ass. For this trifling surface I gave him a piastra, but observing that I was alone, he probably thought he could soon intimidate me into giving whatever he demanded. So he returned me my piastra, and demanded four. I took the money, and told him, for fortunately he understood a little Italian, that if he felt dissatisfied with this reward he might accompany me to the consulate, where his four piastres would be paid so soon as it appeared that he had earned them. He shouted and blustered, just as the captain had done, but I remained deaf, and rode forward towards the custom-house. Then he came down to three piastres, then to two, and finally said he would be content with one, which I threw to him. When I reached the custom-house, hands were stretched out towards me from all sides. I gave something to the chief person, and let the remaining ones clamor on. When, after experiencing these various annoyances, I rode on towards the town, a new obstacle arose. My Arab guide inquired whither he should conduct me. I endeavored in vain to explain to him where I wanted to go. He could not be made to understand me. Nothing now remained for me but to accost every well-dressed Oriental whom I met, until I should find one who could understand either French or Italian. The third person I addressed fortunately knew something of the latter language, 
and I begged him to tell my guide to take me to the Austrian consulate. This was done, and my troubles concluded. A ride of three-quarters of an hour, in a very broad, handsome street, planted with a double row of a kind of acacia, altogether strange to me, among a crowd of men, camels, asses, etc., brought me to the town, the streets of which are in general narrow. There is so much noise and crowding everywhere that one would suppose a tumult had broken out. But as I approached, the immense mass always opened as if by magic, and I pursued my way without hindrance to the consulate, which lies hidden in a little, narrow, blind alley. I went immediately to the office, and presented myself to the consul, with the request that he would recommend me a respectable inn of the second class. Herr Chamion, the consul, interested himself for me with a heartfelt kindness. He immediately dispatched a cavasse to an innkeeper whom he knew, paid my guide, and recommended the host strongly to take good care of me. In short, he behaved towards me with a true Christian kindliness. His house was ever open to me, and I could go to him with any petition I wished to make. It is a real pleasure to me to be able publicly once more to thank this worthy man. I had been furnished with a letter of recommendation to a certain Herr Palm. The consul kindly sent at once for this gentleman, who soon appeared and accompanied me to the inn. I requested Herr P. to recommend me a servant who could either speak Italian or French, and afterwards to tell me the best method to set about seeing the lions of the town. Herr P. very willingly undertook to do so, and after the lapse of an hour the dragoman had already been found, and two asses stood before the door to carry me and my servant through the whole town. The animated bustle and hum of business in the streets of Cairo is very great. I can even say that in the most populous cities of Italy I never saw anything I could compare to it, and certainly this is a bold assertion. Many of the streets are so narrow that when loaded camels meet, one party must always be led into a by-street until the other has passed. In these narrow lanes I continually encountered crowds of passengers, so that I really felt quite anxious, and wondered how I should find my way through. People mounted on horses and donkeys tower above the moving mass, but the asses themselves appear like pygmies beside the high, lofty-looking camels, which do not lose their proud demeanor even under their heavy burdens. Men often slip by under the heads of the camels. The riders keep as close as possible to the houses, and the mass of pedestrians winds dexterously between. There are water-carriers, vendors of goods, numerous blind men groping their way with sticks, and bearing baskets with fruit, bread, and other provisions for sale, numerous children, some of them running about the streets, and others playing before the house-doors, and lastly the Egyptian ladies, who ride on asses to pay their visits, and come in long processions with their children and negro servants. Let the reader further imagine the cries of the vendors, the shouting of the drivers and passengers, the terrified screams of flying women and children, the quarrels which frequently arise, and the peculiar noisiness and talkativeness of these people, and he can fancy what an effect this must have on the nerves of a stranger. I was in mortal fear at every step, and on reaching home in the evening felt quite unwell. But as I never once saw an accident occur, at length I accustomed myself to the hubbub, and could follow my guide where the crowd was thickest without feeling uneasy. The streets, or, as they may be properly called, the lanes of Cairo, are sprinkled with water several times in the day, 
Fountains and large vessels of water are also placed everywhere for the convenience of the passers-by. In the broad streets straw mats are hung up to keep off the sun's rays. The richer class of people wear the oriental garb, with the exception that the women merely have their heads and faces wrapped in a light muslin veil. They wear also a kind of mantilla of black silk, which gives them a peculiar appearance. When they came riding along, and the wind caught this garment and spread it out, they looked exactly like bats with outstretched wings. Many of the Franks also dress in the Oriental style. The fellas go almost naked, and their women only wear a single blue garment. Here, as throughout all the East, the rich people are always seen on horseback. I was not so much pleased with the Egyptians as the Syrian horses, for their former appeared to me less slim and gracefully built. The population of Cairo is estimated at two hundred thousand, and is a mixed one, consisting of Arabs, Mamluks, Turks, Berbers, Negroes, Bedouins, Christians, Greeks, Jews, etc. Thanks to the powerful arm of Mehemet Ali, they all live peacefully together. Cairo contains twenty-five thousand houses, which are as unsightly and irregular as the streets. They are built of clay, unburnt bricks and stones, and have little narrow entrances, the unsymmetrical windows are furnished with wooden shutters impenetrable to the eye. The interiors are decorated like the houses in Damascus, but in a less costly style. Neither is there such an abundance of fresh water at Cairo. The Jews' quarter is the most hideous of all. The houses are dirty, and the streets so narrow that two persons can only just push by each other. The entire town is surrounded by walls and towers, guarded by a castle, and divided into several quarters separated from each other by gates, which are closed after sunset. On the heights around Cairo are to be seen some castles from the time of the Saracens. As I rode to and fro in the town, my guide suddenly stopped, bought a quantity of bread, and motioned me to follow him. I thought he was going to take me to a menagerie, and that this bread was intended for the wild animals. We entered a courtyard with windows all round reaching to the ground, and strengthened with iron bars. Stopping before the first window, my servant threw in a piece of bread. What was my horror when I saw, instead of a lion or tiger, a naked, emaciated old man rush forth, seize the bread, and devour it ravenously? I was in the madhouse. In the midst of each dark and filthy dungeon is fixed a stone, with two iron chains, to which one or two of these wretched creatures are attached by an iron ring fastened round the neck. They sit there, staring with fearfully contorted faces, their hair and beard unkept, their bodies emaciated, and the marrow of life drying up within them. In these foul and loathsome dens they must pine until the Almighty, in His mercy, loosens the chains which bind them to their miserable existence by a welcome death. There is not one instance of a cure, and truly the treatment to which they are subjected is calculated to drive a half-witted person quite mad and yet the Europeans can praise Mehemet Ali. Ye wretched madmen, ye poor fellows, are ye too ready to join in this praise? Quitting this abode of misery, my dragoman led me to Joseph's well, which is deeply hewn out of the rock. I descended more than two hundred and seventy steps, and had got halfway to the bottom of this gigantic structure. On looking downward into its depths, a feeling of giddiness overcame me. The new palace of Mehemet Ali is rather a handsome building, arranged chiefly in the European style. The rooms, or rather the halls, are very lofty, and are either tastefully painted or hung with silk, 
tapestry, etc. Large pier-glasses multiply the objects around, rich divans are attached to the walls, and costly tables, some of marble, others of inlaid work, enriched with beautiful paintings, stand in the rooms, in one of which I even noticed a billiard-table. The dining-hall is quite European in its character. In the center stands a large table, two sideboards are placed against one side of the wall, and handsome chairs stand opposite. In one of the rooms hangs an oil-painting representing Ibrahim Pasha, Mehemet Ali's son. This palace stands in the midst of a little garden, neither remarkable for the rarity of the plants it contains, nor for the beauty of their arrangement. The views from some of the apartments, as well as from that garden, are very lovely. Opposite the palace a great mosque is being built as a mausoleum for Mehemet Ali. The despot probably reckons on having some years yet to live, for much remains to be done before the beautiful structure is completed. The pillars in the walls of the mosque are covered with the most splendid marble, of a yellowish-white color. The before-mentioned buildings, namely, Joseph's Well, the Palace and Gardens, and the mosque, are all situate on a high rock, to which a single, broad road leads from Cairo. Here we behold a threefold sea, namely of houses, of the Nile, and a sea of sand, on which the lofty pyramids rise in the distance like isolated rocks. The mountains of Mokattam close the background, and a number of lovely gardens and plantations of date-palms surround the town. With one glance we can behold the most striking contrasts. A wreath of the most luxuriant vegetation runs round the town, and beyond lies the dreary monotony of the desert. The color of the Nile is so exactly similar to that of the sand forming its shores, that at a distance the line of demarcation cannot be traced. On my way homewards I met several fellows carrying large baskets full of dates, and stopped one of them in order to purchase some of this celebrated fruit. Unfortunately for me, the dates were still unripe, hard, of a brick-red color, and so unpalatable that I could not eat one of them. A week or ten days afterwards I was able to procure some ripe ones. They were of a brown color, like the dried fruit. The tender skin could easily be peeled off, and I liked them better than the dried dates, because they were more pulpy and not so sweet. A much more precious fruit, the finest production of Egypt and Syria, almost superior to the pineapple in taste, is the banana, which is so delicate that it almost melts in the mouth. This fruit cannot be dried, and is therefore never exported. Sugar-melons and peaches are to be had in abundance, but their flavor is not very good. I also preferred the Alexandrian grape to that of Cairo. The bazaars, through which we rode in all directions, displayed nothing very remarkable in manufactures or in productions of nature and art. From first to last I spent a week at Cairo, and occupied the whole of my time from morning till night in viewing the curiosities of the town. I saw only two mosques, that of Sultan Hassan and Sultan Amru. Before I was permitted to enter the first of these edifices, they compelled me to take off my shoes, and walk in my stockings over a courtyard paved with great stones. The stones had become so heated by the solar rays that I was obliged to run fast to avoid scorching the soles of my feet. I cannot give an opinion touching the architectural beauty of this building, which is built in such a simple style that none but a connoisseur would discover its merits. I was better pleased with the mosque of Sultan Amru, which contains several halls, and is supported on numerous columns. The mosques in Cairo struck me as having a more ancient and venerable appearance than those of Constantinople, 
while the latter, on the other hand, were larger and more elegant. I also visited the island of Rhoda, which is worthy of the name of a beautiful garden. It lies opposite to Old Cairo, on the Nile, and is said to be a favorite walk of the townspeople, though I was there twice without meeting any one. The garden is spacious, and contains all kinds of tropical productions. Here I saw the sugar-cane, which greatly resembles the stem of the Indian maize, the cotton-tree, growing to a height of five or six feet, the banana-tree, the short-stemmed date-palm, the coffee-tree, and many others. Flowers were also there in quantities which must be cultivated with great care in the hot-houses of my native country. The whole of this collection of plants is very tastefully arranged, and shines forth in the height of luxuriant beauty. It is customary to lay the entire island under water every evening by means of artificial canals. This system is universally carried out throughout the Egyptian plantations, and is, in fact, the only method by which vegetation can be preserved in its freshest green, in spite of the burning heat. The care of this fairy grove is entrusted to a German ornamental gardener. Unfortunately, I was informed of this fact too late. Otherwise, I should have visited my countrymen and requested an explanation of many things which appeared strange to me. In the midst of a garden is a beautiful grotto, ornamented within and without by a great variety of shells from the Red Sea, which give it a most striking appearance. At this spot, towards which many paths lead, all strewed with minute shells instead of gravel, Moses is said to have been found in his cradle of bulrushes. Immediately adjoining the garden we find a summer residence belonging to Mehemet Ali. The wall shown as that into which Joseph was thrust by his brethren lies about two miles distant from the town, in a village on the road to Suez. Half a mile off a very large and very venerable sycamore tree was pointed out to me as the one in the shade of which the Holy Family rested on their way to Egypt, and a walk of another quarter of a mile brings us to the garden of Bogus Bay, in the midst of which stands one of the finest and largest obelisks of Upper Egypt. It is still in good condition, and completely covered with hieroglyphics. The garden, however, offers nothing remarkable. The ancient city of Heliopolis is said to have been built not far off, but at the present day not a vestige of it remains. The road to this garden already lies partly in the desert. At first the way winds through avenues of trees and past gardens, but soon the vast desert extends to the right, while beautiful orange and citron groves still skirt the left side of the path. Here we continually meet herds of camels, but a dromedary is a rare sight. End of section 29